The other week, uh, my wife and I went to see a dance. Are there any dancers here? This is where you talk back to me. Raise your hand. Any dancers? Okay. Uh, We went to see a dance, and um, I'm not a dancer, and so this was the first time we we saw a ballet together, and... um, and even as I think about it, and as I thought about uh, opening with this this morning, um, I found myself sort of searching for words because the images of, of being there and seeing um, this were just so fantastic and so incredible that, that if you're not there seeing this, it's hard to describe. There were, there were, there were children uh, in the show, and they, they were twirling and stepping and tapping across the stage, and, and they had their part to play. Um, there, were, there were beautifully choreographed movements. You had this, this, this wonderful troupe of talented artists who were working together. They had obviously prepared for hours upon hours to pull together this wonderful show. They, they had this beautiful set design that, that focused you in on the dancers, and they were were elegant, they were graceful, they were poised, they were, they were beautiful. And I, and I thought about this, this show, I thought about this story, I thought about these dancers, and I thought about them because they helped me to come to something uh, in, that, that I'm going to share with you this morning, and, 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 it, and it's about God. I, I, I um, read a theologian in seminary named Catherine Tanner, and we were reflecting on her, her book, um, Jesus, Humanity, and the Trinity. And one of the things we talked about in um, discussing her book was how God is, um, is involved in a, in a holy dance. How the triune God, how the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is is involved in a beautiful, perfect, flawless, well-choreographed dance. And I, and I sat uh, this week and the last week thinking about this beautiful ballet, the colors, their costumes, how their arms and limbs were extended and still. And, and I came this week to thinking about God, who, who this theologian says is involved in a dance. And, and the thing about God being involved in this beautiful dance is it's quite unlike uh, the Nutcracker in that you go to the auditorium theater, you watch the dance, and you applaud, you sit and you are enraptured and captivated by these movements and by this beauty and by this unspeakable, awesome gesture on this stage. God is like that, but unlike that, in that the Holy One, the Trinity is involved in this dance. And rather than allow you and I to sit and to watch this God who, who, is, who is holy, this God who is both creator and redeemer, who is creator, redeemer, and sustainer, does not rest with you watching this dance. But this God, in some way that is not always explicable, invites you to dance. Yes, God is 
awesome and beautiful. And when we look at God, we, we are struck and we wonder, how could you do this? How could you dance this way? How could you be so magnificent? How could you be so wonderful? God, very much within God's person, is too striking for us to approach that stage, for us to engage in that beautiful community. It is true that we cannot be God. It is true that we cannot join in the essence of God. We cannot be what only God is. And at the same time, this beautiful God, this amazing God who is, who is joy-filled and who is moving and who is passionate and whose face you can see and see mission and see purpose and see wonder, whose face you can see and be struck, this same God who is unapproachable because of beauty and delight invites you and me to come and to to come into this, this, this holy community, to come into the presence, to come into the glory and the splendor of a stage that, if you sit, can just be entertaining, can just be wonderful, can be striking. This God who is beautiful starts creation and ends creation and all in between by over and over inviting people like me who cannot dance, people like some of you who have no rhythm, people like some of us who have clumsy feet to dance. Within God's person, God's identity, God's constitution is this invitation to you to join and dance. And and I think I think that we have a slippery problem in that we want to be a part of God's mission and what activity God is doing and what work God is accomplishing and sometimes we have that we have we have that moment where we where we bypass the person of God who is involving us who is inviting us to to a community to a relationship to an engaging experience to a splendid encounter we miss that and we get to work. We miss joy and we get to the activity. And friends of mine, I I want to say to you that part of our responsibility for those of us who are disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, is yes to get to the mission of God, but not to get to the mission of God without losing a sense for the person of God. God. The mission of God, the work of God is about activity. It is about accomplishment. It is about succeeding. It is motion. It is movement. And certainly the church is on a mission. The church is moving. The church has momentum. And that strikes us as acceptable because we live our lives that way. 
We'd prefer to be busy. We'd prefer to be active. We'd prefer to be on the stage dancing, but not knowing anything about the partner who is lifting you, extending you, pulling you, holding you. And the question for us is whether or not we will be both a part of the mission of God and know what God wants us to do and be a part of that holy community, knowing the person of God at the same time. God's work and God's person. Now, 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 no pastor, no theologian, no Bible student will strike this artificial split between the person of God on the one hand and the work of God. In fact, good theology helps you see the connecting points between the two because God only does who God is. God only does out of what God is. And so I can't be too strong about striking this difference between God's person and God's work. But hear me impress upon you this morning that you and I can be so enamored by doing the work of God that we miss the person of God. The question is not whether God's agenda and, 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 and purpose and mission will get done. If you're a person of faith this morning, if you have faith in a big God, if you have faith in a mighty God, you will concede that God's agenda will get accomplished. No person, no thing is strong enough to persuade anything other than God's agenda being ultimately done. God will get God's business done. That is unquestioned. The question is whether God will get you. So this morning, I, I want to talk to you about one of the ways, one of the tools that God uses to get you. One of the implements, one of the avenues that God will put in our way, put in our life, put in our schedules to draw you into this community, to draw you into this family called the family of God, to draw you closer for you who are already in this family, to draw you deeper for you who are already very much a part of this, this reunion. For, for those of you who are far from God, who have no concept of God, who, who do not know this Jesus who is involved in this beautiful dance, this is an invitation for you to come and to lean just a little bit, for you to come and eavesdrop, for you to come and and glance at a God who is beautiful, who is dancing, who is waiting, who is involved in the music and the rhythm and waiting for you to come and to get off the wall and to dance. This morning, I want to talk to you about a spiritual discipline. The spiritual disciplines are, 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 are practices or gestures or behaviors or habits that, 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 that increase your desire uh, to, to, to be like Jesus and increase your desire for Jesus. The, the spiritual disciplines are those practices that we put in our life, like prayer, like Bible reading, like spiritual reading of other sorts, to, to draw us closer to Jesus. To make us more obedient to Jesus. To bring us closer to this God. Perhaps just by one step in getting to know Jesus.
This morning, I, I could get on my phone and, and call my barber, Richard. Brother Richard will take my call, and I can, I can talk to him about uh, lines and uh, tapers. I can talk to him about a fade. I can talk to him about growing a fro. I can talk to him about my clean spots. I can talk to him... Uh, that's code for ball spots. Um, I, 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 can, I can talk to him about whether I should shave my goatee. I can talk to him about whether or not he should use a razor or clippers. I can talk to him about all of these things related to my grooming. But, but on the phone, at some point, Brother Richard is going to want to have me come before him, sit in his chair so that he can get his hands on my head. Some of you cook. Some of you try to cook, but that's another point. Some of you, some of you, some of you cook, and uh, I cook, I don't bake. So let's talk about baking. Some, some of you here bake, and, and, and if you want to make a cake, you can pull your eggs on the counter, you can get your uh, flour, you can get your sugar, uh, Winston, you can, get, you can get all of your icing, you can get your extract if you use it, you can get these things, but, but you will never make a cake, your cake will never bake if you do not crack, measure, if you do not mix, if you do not pour, If you do not put things in pans, turn on ovens and bake them and watch them rise. You you have to eventually put your hands on your ingredients and reform them and shape them and make them into something called a cake. I want you to think this morning about the spiritual disciplines as those things that allow God to get his hands on you and to shape you and to reform you and to make you and to create you. And, and, and can I tell you that God certainly loves you unconditionally. Now, I want you to get this straight, and if I don't say it correctly, hear me say it this way. God loves you without condition. There is nothing you can do to earn God's love. That needs to be clear. That's on the one side. There's a comma and an and. The other side of the sentence is God loves you but never allows those who he loves to stay in the same shape, to stay in the same way. And so God loves you, but God is motivated. God loves you, but God is motivated by that love. God is so motivated that he will not rest until something about you is different. Until you are a step closer than you were before. Until you are closer to God. Until you're better at hearing God's voice. Until you are deeper in your prayer life. God will not leave you until you are somewhere closer to the dance floor than to the wall. God will leave you. No, because God loves you. So God, who loves you without condition, loves you too much to leave you in the shape that you're in. So the question for us is how does God go about drawing us closer? How does God come to us and bring us closer to God? How does God, and the answer in the Christian tradition are these spiritual practices, these disciplines of the spirit, these habits as it were. The disciplines are tools that God uses. And and by God's grace, the Holy Spirit uses what we do, 
to create in us an environment, an environment in our hearts for God to do what only God can do. See, see, you and I can pray, but we can't answer our prayers. You can pray, but only God can answer. And the disciplines are simply us doing what we can do in order for God to be prepared and ready in us to do what only he can do. These, these disciplines are what the Holy Spirit uses to change our hearts, to change our, our love. Have you ever been in love? Have you ever been in love? <laughs> Is that a no? <laughs> I said this before, but uh, my, my first love was Mrs. Kahn. And uh, she was my first grade teacher. And uh, I, I had all the hope in the world that she would come around. And, and I knew she was married, but I waited. And um, it, it wasn't until she came to school pregnant that I knew I would have to find somebody else. I knew it was over. I knew it was over for me then. Um, and then there was Miss Bond. She was fourth grade. I had a thing for teachers. And uh, <laughs> I, 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 I became a poet then. I wrote Miss Bond a, a letter, and she was traveling. She was a part of the choir that I eventually joined. Her children were in it. And I wrote this letter, and I slid it under her desk before they took this trip. And... Uh, and I waited, you know. She read my letter, and she was kind enough not to respond. <laughs> yes, I've probably fallen in love every other year. It depends, you know. And, 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 and for me, for me, love, love started making me write. I, I mean, I was in high school writing poems for girls I was sweet on, as they say. And, 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 and eventually, eventually... Uh, I, we were watching a video the other day, and uh, this, is, this is actually funny, and I'm going to get to the point very quickly with this. Um, we were, my brother was over, my family was over, my brother said, let me watch this video. It was the video of, of uh, me and Dawn's engagement party. And, you know, my wife rolls her eyes, as she, as she will, because she knows what this means. And so we're watching this tape, and eventually in the tape, everybody's saying things. It's, it's comical, this tape. And uh, you will never see it, by the way, Peter Hong. You will not see it. Uh. <laughs> but we're watching this tape, and my groomsmen, our wedding party was there, our family was there, and one of my groomsmen, Charlie Dates, he's, he's telling his story, and he starts the story. He's a preacher. He's a pastor in, here in the city. And he starts his story like a preacher. And I'm not sure where he's going with this story. So he says, you know, we were in a meeting in college. We were part of this organization. We were in a meeting, and, um, and uh, we were sitting around the table. And then he says, Michael was there. And I'm like, okay, where is he going with this? And all of a sudden, we, we, uh, we heard somebody singing. And come to find that Dawn was outside the meeting room serenading Michael. Wasn't that sweet? 
that my wife was, what well, my wife-to-be was singing to me. I thought the story was going to be about me singing to her. And my point is that uh, when you love, when you, when you, when you, and, and you know, here's the point, because nobody's interested in Mrs. Khan and singing, but the point is when you love, it affects your behavior. It changes what you do. I'm not going to do that, but when your heart is reached, you will do things that you didn't imagine yourself doing. And, and, and try to think about that truth, not just in your own experience, but with respect to how you relate to God. And the question becomes, since I love God, or since I want to know God, what am I willing to do? What am I willing to add to my life? Because my heart is occupied by this Lord. What am I willing to do because I actually am devoted to this God? Solitude is one of the disciplines in the contemplative tradition. And the contemplative tradition has to do with your head and your heart. It has to do with how you think and feel about your relationship with God. And inside this tradition are other things like praying, whatever sort of in your head and in your heart, praying or reading or adding to your intellect, you know, engaging your emotions. And solitude is, is sitting in this tradition. The definition that I want you to hold about solitude is simply this. Being alone and being quiet in the presence of God. Being alone and being quiet in the presence of God. Now, I might say sitting in solitude, but but the posture does not matter as much as solitude is being alone and with God and saying nothing. It is is simply being with God in, in some kind of silence. Now, let me tell you that's what solitude is not. Solitude is not a way of praying. You're not doing something when you're in solitude. It's it's not you thinking over a matter. It's not you meditating on something. It's not you trying to trying to worship God in a quiet way. Solitude really is doing nothing. And this is a stretch for us because it is doing nothing in God's presence. And so, and it, it's sitting with God and just sort of putting to the side the things to do list, sitting in the presence of God. And anyone who, who talks about this habit or this spiritual exercise has some questions to answer because it's true. Um, the, the, the objections to solitude are there. You know, questions like who has time to sit alone and to sit quiet and to do nothing? Who has time? Isn't it boring? Won't you be distracted? And even worse, won't something come up when you're sitting with God saying nothing and doing nothing that you don't want to address, that you just don't want to pay attention to? And the answers to all those questions... And even the questions themselves are valid. Maybe you do not have time. Maybe it's not something that you want to do. But can I say to you, family, that that these objections are the main reasons why this discipline is something that should be somewhere in your life. The objections about time and about interest and about uh, attention are, are, are valuable in that they are the very reasons why we come and we sit in the presence of God or we come and submit ourselves in silence to God. 
Now, before we turn to uh, the guts of solitude as, as a topic, I want us to take a step as a congregation to, to, this, to this topic uh, and to this, this sort of practice. And I want to do that uh, in the form of centering prayer. Say centering prayer. Say it. How many of you are familiar with centering prayer? Okay, Josh, Josh, you're on the spot. Uh, we're going to listen. Tell us in the... I know, I know. You should never answer the question. You should never answer the question. Yep. Tell us. Give us, give us what centering prayer is. Loud so we can hear you. Yep, yep. It is, it is prayer that is focusing. It is prayer that is focusing on Christ, on some, he's, woof, yeah, good answer. Um, and so this morning, as a congregation, I want us to take a step towards solitude by praying in a centering prayer. Now, again, solitude is not prayer, and prayer is not solitude, but we feel the same kinds of things when we try to do centering prayer, or when we do centering prayer, as we do when we're alone and quiet with God. The same issues come up, the same sort of challenges come up. And so this morning, I want us to look at Psalm 62. If you have your Bible, you can turn to it. We'll put it on the screen and sort of scroll through the passages. I want you to, to look at this, this number, at this uh, Hebrew poem. And, and here's what you'd want to do in centering prayer. You choose an image or a phrase or a word that pops out to you and you hold the image, you hold the word or the phrase and you sit with it and you allow the phrase or the image or the word to center you. You, you try to center on that image or that prayer and so, or that, or that phrase. And so let's scroll through and just take a look at uh, this Psalm. And for just a moment, I want you to pray what occurs to you We won't do this long. Don't be nervous. Some of you haven't, but some of you have had time to pray. Um, and and I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to ask one or two of you to, to, to volunteer just a word or phrase. What was just this small space of time like for you? Honestly, one or two of you who have had time. This is where you answer, if you will. 
Was anybody distracted? Some of you, yeah. Okay, what else? That phrase stuck out for you. Others. Someone else. Okay. And alone is my rock. Other phrases that came out for you or... Um, Feelings or thoughts about the time of prayer. One or two more. Yes, brother. Say that one more time. Mm, mm, mm. Part where you wait quietly. So the psalmist is trying to gather quiet peace in the midst of this chaos. Let, let me ask you sort of a, a group question. Some of you will say no to this, and some of you will say yes to this, and this is. Uh, Somewhat rhetorical, but, but is this a kind of step, a kind of prayer that you can see yourself praying? And, and again, centering prayer is a step toward solitude because the distractions and um, the, the, the grocery list or what have you, uh, the, the feelings of uh, this is not engaging me, I'm not in the right space to do this, the, the heart stuff that is happening you in you uh, when you're trying to pray with a guide, even with scripture, come up when you're sitting in the presence of God and you have no guide and you're trying to be in God's presence and you're trying to be quiet when there's so many other things that could be done in the moment. And so solitude, I want to I go through sort of four things. Uh, at least that's the plan. We'll see if we can get through the four in talking about solitude and, and what I think we can get from solitude. There are more things, but we'll condense it to four. And the first thing is that solitude helps us, <coughs> teaches us to release results and to recognize feelings. Solitude teaches us to uh, release Results and to recognize feelings. Now, the results are important. The, the mission of, of God or the mission of your life is important. The activity that we're engaged in, the work that we're doing is important. The disciplines of the Spirit are tools that God uses to make us active and missional. And God uses these things ultimately to make us agents of reconciliation or grace or healing. And, and being a means of healing is important. Being a means of reconciliation, having results in your life is important. But it is just as important as you recognizing what is going on in your life, what is going on in your heart. It is, it is just as important that you get things done, that you recognize what the Holy Spirit is doing in you. Results matter less 
and less, or they matter just as much as what's in your head and what's in your heart. I was, I was um, listening and talking with my spiritual director sometime early last year, and she said something to me. We were talking about this doing and, and having to do and getting things done. And, and she, was, she said to me uh, in the context of that conversation that um, it's about feeling more. We were talking about life and work and ministry, and she said it's about feeling more and not less. And, and that language, feeling more and not less, is what I think we feel and sense when we come into God's presence in quiet, we began to feel more. We began as doers or active people to get a sense that, 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 that emotions and what's happening in us is just as important because we're not doing anything in the moment. God will pull us into solitude, will pry us or push us into the presence of God. And a result of that is coming to know the unconditional love of God for us. And a part of that is, 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 is your emotions and your feelings. Because God knows that you feel even when you block yourself out from your feelings because you have things to do. And so God allows the space, the room, as it were, that is solitude to be a space where you recognize your feelings, not just the feelings of others, not just empathy, but what's going on in you. The second thing about solitude, and we'll go to a passage in a moment, the second thing is that solitude sits us in the conscious presence of God. Solitude places us in the presence of God, where we are aware of God's presence. Now, if you have your Bibles, open them to 1 Samuel chapter 3. 1 Samuel chapter 3. We'll read verses 1 through 14. 1 Samuel 3. Verses 1 uh, through 14. And this passage and the passage that we'll get to in John 4, I want to submit to you as examples of solitude, as examples of being uh, quiet, of being alone in the presence of God. And so we'll read just a portion of uh, the chapter that sort of grabs at this. 1 Samuel 3, 1 through 14. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel served the Lord by assisting Eli. Now in those days, messages from the Lord were very rare, and visions were quite uncommon. One night, Eli, who was almost blind by now, had gone to bed. The lamp of God had not yet gone gone out, and Samuel was sleeping in the tabernacle near the ark of God. Suddenly, the Lord called out, Samuel! Yes, Samuel replied. What is it? He got up and ran to Eli. Here I am. Did you call me? I didn't call you, Eli replied. Go back to bed. So he did. Then the Lord called out again, Samuel. Again, Samuel got up and went to Eli. Here I am. Did you call me? I didn't call you, my son, Eli said. Go back to bed. Samuel did not yet know the Lord because he had never had a message from the Lord before. So the Lord called a third time and once more Samuel got up and went to Eli. Here I am. Did you call me? Then Eli realized it was the Lord who was calling the boy. Notice that no one knew, neither of them at this point had known that it was God's voice. 
So he said to Samuel, go and lie down again. And if someone calls again, say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. So Samuel went back to bed. And the Lord came and called as before, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel replied, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Verse 11, then the Lord said to Samuel, I am about to do a shocking thing in Israel. I am going to carry out all of my threats against Eli and his family from beginning to end. I have warned him that judgment is coming upon his family forever because his sons are blaspheming the Lord and he hasn't disciplined them. So I have vowed that the sins of Eli and his sons will never be forgiven by sacrifices or offerings. Now here in the text is where you get out of uh, solitude and you begin to see Samuel hearing God's voice, hearing God's message, and eventually in the chapter telling Samuel how he will be used in this ministry, in this prophetic way. But, but over the first few verses, you ha- I want you to see this sense of God being in Samuel's room and Samuel being in the presence of God and God speaking. And this is, is somewhat like the, the experience of this spiritual discipline where you and I, some of us, are confused. If we're sitting with God's presence, it's hard to hear God's voice. You don't recognize it. You think it's something in your own head. You think it's something maybe that you ate. You think it's something that somebody else said to you. And eventually, sitting with God's uh, voice in your ear comes to you eventually, maybe with the help of others walking alongside you, spiritual friends. You're sitting in God's presence and you're learning what it means, what it feels like to hear God's voice and to eventually say, speak, Lord. I'm in a place where I can hear you. Say what you have to say. I'm in a place where I can open my ears to you. Speak, Lord. When you sit quiet, when you sit, Samuel was laying. This was probably in the night before he was Going off to sleep, he's sitting. And when we sit and we do nothing, we are, we are doing what the Bible calls a Sabbath. Solitude, solitude is a mini Sabbath. It is time when you do nothing. It is time when you stop doing anything. And, and you're engaging in this holy Sabbath when you practice this discipline. And Sabbath is, is, is a biblical command, in fact, where God gives us the Sabbath. Can I tell you, can I tell you, and I'll say this softly, that you and I cannot burn out by obeying God's voice. From time to time, I've heard people say, we've heard people say um, in church leadership that, that they're burned out. And that means different things to different people. It usually has something to do with exhaustion. It usually has something to do with being fried or frayed or frazzled. And, 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 and I want to say to you that, that, that when we hear the voice of God, when we obey the voice of God, we can't burn out. And why is that? Because God commands Sabbath. And if we're obeying God... We are obeying some kind of Sabbath rhythm in our lives. And Sabbath is that time, that space, be it a day, be it, be it, be it a moment or series of moments or series of days where we stop our activity and where we, 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 we sit and we see that activity. 
activity goes on without us, and eventually we catch up with the truth that God is more active, God is at more work, God is accomplishing more than we ever could, and it anchors us when we re-engage with our work. It changes our perspective from, I've got to do, I must accomplish, I must succeed, to, boy, God is really mighty. And at a soul level, it begins to convince you of a truth that you have called a lie. And that is, you can only do so much because God is so much greater. Solitude sits us in the conscious presence of a God who is at work, who is mighty, who is doing, who is active, and who reminds us we cannot do it all. The third thing is that solitude enables community. Say the word community. Now, we're going to go to John 4, and I want you to think about John 4. Imagine this passage as a, as a dialogue uh, between two people. As I said about 1 Samuel, I think this isn't, this isn't a picture of solitude. I think you, you get to see this, this woman, this unnamed woman, in the presence of God, and her and Jesus are talking. And this, this is what's happening in solitude. God is, God is saying something. God is speaking. So think about uh, this, and we'll sort of read through it, but I want you to think about uh, the, the pauses that might be at play in this conversation, the, the awkward silences, the tension that might be there, and so forth. So let's actually skip this. Jesus is showing up in Samaria. He's in Sychar. We get to verse six. Let's go one. We go to six. Yes. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well at noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. Can you read this beginning verse 8 with me? Come on. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. Keep reading. Why just that? No, really, why'd y'all stop? Okay. Keep reading. (laughs) It's a test of the emergency broadcast system. But sir, come on, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said. And this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Verse 11. Verse, yeah, 13 rather. Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water, then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. 
Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband for you've had five husbands and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship? While we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worship. Let's stop here. The conversation between Jesus and this woman is meandering. And, and, and I want you to sort of see that. See that conversation going up and down, moving kind of around and around. And eventually, there are two things that come up in this dialogue and in this time of this woman's, I believe, solitude and, and sitting in the presence of Jesus. I think this conversation is at least about relationships and worship and, 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 and the practical matters of her relationship and the practical matters of how she engages with God in worship. And, and I want to suggest to you that, that you and I can only be alive, be, be, be vibrant, be resourced for the, the relationships that we have, the people in our lives, the community that is around us, when we have a thriving relationship with God. I thought that uh, because I was an introvert, that solitude, the discipline of solitude would be simpler for me, would be easy for me to sort of attach to. I'm an introvert. It means I love people, but it means I have to get away from people. It means that uh, I have sort of schedules in myself where I have to sort of just go off and walk and be somewhere by myself. And some of you kind of understand that introverts are varying varieties. Most of us love people, most of us. Um, but, 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 but introversion, I found personally, is actually more difficult for you to practice solitude. Because when you're an introvert, you're off to yourself. But solitude means that you're off to your God. And it's a very thin line. And I, and I, told, I told Dawn this when I was ta- talking, preparing about solitude. She said, oh, you don't practice solitude much? And she kind of looks at me like I'm lying. I said, well, if I'm off by myself, I'm probably praying. I'm probably studying. I'm probably doing these kinds of things. But, but I'm not sitting doing nothing in God's presence. For the extroverts among us, it's easier because you sort of just disengage. You know, it's already a struggle for you. You like being around people. If you have to be in God's presence, okay. But, you know, you can kind of re-engage. It's a simpler line. But solitude empowers you and enables you to come back to your community, to come back to your relationships, to come back to your marriage, to come back to your family with a renewed sense of energy. And in a way, it happens in John 4. Eventually, as we go through the verses, you will see that Jesus talks to this woman, engages in challenges, and confronts this woman, and she goes back to the city and tells people about Christ and about this conversation and about this life change that has happened for her, and people come with her to encounter Christ. Her relationships are changed and transformed because she has stepped away to get in the presence of God. She didn't know it. She didn't know she was going to the well to meet God, but she met God. She was alone and with God, and God talked with her. Jesus ministered to her in this space, and she eventually changed, and her relationships changed as well. She was at this well with Jesus, 
with these relationship issues. And Jesus does not talk to her about her past. And you would imagine that her past is littered with experiences that are, that are, that are, that are unspeakable, some of them. And Jesus sort of clues us into this, all the relationships she's had. And, and I can imagine what wasn't recorded in John's account. Can you imagine, uh, does Jesus just sort of drop off or does he kind of move? Does he go back? Does he talk with her? Does he process some of this stuff? Can you imagine this? And here is Jesus, and he's not trying to go and change the relationships. He's not trying to change her circumstances. In this conversation, he's trying to change her. And solitude is that. It is in in an enabling community. It is the moment or those moments where God changes you so that you can go back to your life, go back after you've prayed, after you've been with God. It is preparation for a community. Chris Armstrong, in a leadership article, says that solitude is not removing yourself from service to others. It is the essential preparation for service. That preparation remains necessary today. Maybe before some of us find community, maybe before some of us try to engage in relationships in this church, there's a call from God for us to change, for us to do differently, for us to be different. And then engage in community. And then engage in relationships. Lastly, solitude enlivens worship. Dallas Willard and uh, Jacob, you guys can, can come on up. Dallas Willard said that uh, God will not compete for our attention. God will not compete for our attention. When I think about sin, I think that there are two, and, and I'm open for correction and, and conversation, and, but I think there are two basic sins in, in, in the human experience. I think the two basic sins are idolatry and lying. Idolatry, where, where the creator is displaced by creation with creation. So that the created person takes something that God created and says that it is now in the place of God. That is idolatry. Where we remove God from God's place and put something else that God created in God's place. I think the second basic sin for human beings is lying. It's very connected to idolatry, where we say true things are false and false things are true. Every other sin seems to come after those. Every other sin seems to come, uh, be it it what's happening in my head or my heart. This is true. This is false. We begin to lie. And the, the place of those sins becomes entrenched in us. Can I tell you that God will not, uh, and this is in the spirit of Dallas Willard, compete with your idols? God God will not fight with your idols because God, God, as powerful as God is, is also humble. And and I don't know that this image will be helpful for some of you, but can you imagine God uh, uh, being very present while you idolize creation 
And God says, simply waiting for you. God simply, not fighting, not defending, not trying to kick your idol, not trying to remove your idol from your life, but simply waiting for you to get up from worshiping your idol, from you to get up and to see that your idol has no power, for you to see that your idol has done nothing for you, and eventually for you to look around and say, what else do I have? And this same God is standing waiting for you, not defending, but simply being present. And when, friends of mine, you and I, who idolize all kinds of things, eventually come to that moment and that place where everything we have idolized fails us. When we come to that place where we're saying, what else do I have? When we look around in our hearts, when we search, we see truth. We see God who is never absent. And when you see God, who is never absent, who is always present, waiting for you after your idolatry, waiting for me during my idolatry, waiting for us, what is the fitting response? The fitting response is nothing but a worship. It is nothing but confessing and saying and speaking and singing something about that God's character. When we encounter God, when we sit in the presence of God, sure, we will want to repent of our sins. Sure, we will want to come to God and, 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 and ask for things. We will want to pray. We will want to, to ask for things and, uh, for other people whom we love. But when we are in God's presence, in the quietness of God's presence, we will hear God. We will see God. We will encounter God. And we will walk away with an enlivened sense that God is beautiful. One pastor said that solitude, solitude, solitude is that time when you sit with God. And you, you not just learn, again, that the purpose of ministry is about getting things done. It is not about control, but it is about awe. And so, as I close, can I, can I ask you to stretch this morning and to think for a moment about the character of God who is beautiful, who is lovely, who is, who is adorned in glory, and who is awesome. Can you think this morning, uh, certainly you have days and years behind you, you have days and years before you, but can you think about God, not as the God who is active, who is fulfilling, who is completing, who is doing, but who is simply beautiful and wonderful. This God is... This God who dances is, is involved in a wondrous way. This God is in a community that is splendid, that is holy, that is divine. But this God invites you and me to come and to see this dance, to come and to respond in awe, and to come and eventually get in on the day. So sit for a moment, and before we pray, hear God, hear God speaking to you. Hear God.
Pray this. Pray this. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy. Come on. Tried and true. With thanksgiving, I'll be a living sanctuary, Lord, for you. Sanctuary, bring the keys in for you. Come on, lift your voices and say it. Lord, prepare. Lord, prepare me. To be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true. Best gift that we can give you on a Sunday like today is in a moment I'm going to give the benediction and bless you to, to go forth and be Christ to some place, someone this week. But for those of you that, for whom it's rare to find moments of quiet and solitude, stay. Stay as long as you'd like in this sanctuary. And allow God to speak for you to have this quiet time before you head out into the new year. May you be people, may we be a church that desires the very presence of God. And in solitude, not just spend time, but in solitude see and come to see the awe and the beauty and the majesty and the wonder of our God. That in that time, we would enable God to do transforming work in us so that we would be instruments of grace to the world that desperately needs His love and grace. The Holy Spirit goes before you, the Holy Spirit goes behind you, and the Holy Spirit goes beside you. You lack nothing to live your life for Christ. Know that he lives in you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, amen. For those of you that need prayer, prayer team will be by the cross to pray for you. Come up. Have a great week, you guys, and we'll see you back here next Sunday.